You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Father, you are so amazingly gracious to us. You have given us life. But then you gave us life more abundantly in your Son. You've given us your Word that we can know you. We can know who we are in you. And then you've given us your church that we can see you as you act, as you love. Father, what an amazing God you are. And Lord, I pray now that you, through your Holy Spirit, would empower your word. That your saints would be built up in their faith. That we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, that your word would not return to you void. Father, bless us in this. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to be preaching on three verses, but don't make the mistake of thinking that it's going to be a short sermon. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. So the question I have to ask is, do you, do I really desire to know God? Or are we here today because this is the thing to do? Because we desire to be spiritual. Because coming to church makes us feel good about ourselves. Proves that we really are good people. Am I really here because I desire God? Desire to know God. The Gospel of John and the letters of John all have one main overarching goal within them. To know God. This seems kind of important. Why does John and the other apostles so often admonish us to know God? Is there any value in knowing God? What's the value in knowing God? And that term, God, is one that we need to think through as well. Because every religion, even atheism, has a God. Some refer to it as a higher form, the great spirit, or as an atheism, me. But most refer to it as God. The JWs do. The Mormons do. The Muslims use the term Allah, which means God. Buddhists use the term divas, which means gods, since they are polytheistic. But they all believe in God, sincerely, seriously. And many of them are willing to give their lives for their God, or even take the lives of those that are not willing to serve their God. And this is nothing new. In a culture, at a time that was filled with other gods, with other religions, Jesus came and said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, John 17, 3. He, ma- he came and he made a truth claim. A claim that by its very nature is divisive and exclusive. There is only one God, only one true God, and that he was sent from him to make him known. And this is the truth is given to us as a, in the first 18 verses of the gospel according to John. This is the truth that sets the God of Christianity apart from all others. He says that he is knowable. And that he desires those that are of him to know him and to know about him. We are told that this God is truth. And that all truth comes from and flows through him. And that truth is the word. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The first thing that God, through John, wanted us to know was about this one who is called the word. Who he is. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. We are meant to understand that there was never a time that the Word was not with God. God never existed apart from this Word. He's always been, just as God has always been, which verse 3 confirms. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then this Word, God, goes on to tell us about Himself, verses 4-5. through In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verses 6 through 8 are given to tell us of a man that was a herald of this word, of this light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This man named John is used to help define this God called the Word, the one that was in the beginning with God, the one that is God. This man, John, came as a witness about this one who is no longer being called the Word. Now he's being described as light. And in verse 9 we are told, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This God, this Word, this light did something completely unfathomable. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Saints, think about this. We're told in the Genesis account of the events surrounding this world being created. First the natural world, and then after creating the heavens and the earth and this planet, God took part of that created planet, fashioned with his own hands a created being, and breathed his life into it, making it into his own image. And this created thing was a being. It was a human being. It was made in the image of God. And these created image-bearing human beings did not know the God that had made them, in whose image they had been created. They not only did not know him, they were so alienated from him that they didn't even receive him. But then we're told that some of these human beings that did not know this word, this light, that some of them did receive him. And those that did, he gave them the right to become children of God. And then God, through the Apostle John, refocuses our attention off of these that have been given the right to be called children of God and back onto the one that gives them that right, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He who I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from him, I'm sorry, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. To living, breathing people. Think about this. To living, breathing people. Jesus speaks of life. True life. An other life. A life that is not bound up or controlled or governed by death. An eternal life. And this life is found in knowing God. But the life that this word, this life, this Jesus came to give, that we receive as children of God, this life is not the reason that we should come to worship this God. Now, don't get me wrong. It is reason enough to live our entire lives in service and worship to this God, but it isn't the reason that we come to worship, the reason that we open the Word, the reason that we submit ourselves to it. God is. And this God is the only true God. All others, all ever, every other flavor, version, make, and model are all false gods. Only this God is true. All others are a lie. And this God is bound up in Jesus Christ, who this God sent. He came to make God known. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3. To have the light that is, that is found in this Word, in this light, we have to come to that Word, to that light. And all others that are not the Word and are not the light, and no others have life bound up within them. Many others will make promises that they have life, will claim to be the Word. This is the lie of the Antichrist, the one that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the one that is described as the deceiver who disguises himself as an angel of light but is not light at all. So then how can we be sure then? How can we be sure that we really are of the real light, really have been given eternal life in his name? How can we know? Or can we know? Well, Jesus, when he came to his own, to the ones that would not, could not receive him, he told some of those religious leaders this, John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. These men had the oracles that God had had. They had them memorized and spent their lives discussing them, debating them, and teaching them. These men claimed to be of God. They had all been circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. They were all of the physical line of Abraham. They claimed to be of the family of God and held that all that were outside of them were unclean, that they were separate, outside of the family of God. These men held that God was their God. But to them, this Jesus told them, you do not have the word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 38 of John 5. Since all of this is true, that these men of the physical line of Abraham, to whom the covenant promises had been made since they had his word, and they were still being told that they did not have the word abiding in them, how then are we to be sure that we really do have the word of God abiding in us, that we really are of the light, of the family of God? Well, the answer to that is told to us in verse 40 of John 5, when Jesus said, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Once again, we are being challenged with the question of who and what the God that we claim to believe in. The Jesus that we save saved us. Who He really is. God the Father sent the Son. He chose to bind up our second birth, our adoption and propitiation, all in and through the Son. And are 
we really of this word, this light? Do we have this life? Are we truly children of God? To answer yes to this is found in one thing. Are we under subjection to the word of God? Do we hold that it, he, is the rule of our life? Or are we those that desire to free ourselves from what we deem to be a shackle or a burden? I will not submit to my husband. You have no idea what a jerk he is. I will not love my, work, my wife. She's just downright mean. I will not become a member of a church. I don't need the church. I don't need to attend church regularly either. I can stay at home and watch it on TV or the Internet. I will not give. That's Old Testament stuff. I will not hold that the Ten Commandments are authoritative over my life. I am a New Testament Christian, and Christ has set me free to do whatever I want. I can lie. I can cheat. I can steal from my boss, from my company. It's all good. God doesn't mind. He knows. He saved me as I am. And we're all good. And if that's your heart towards God, then you are right. You are all good with your God. But that God is not the God of the Bible. The Jesus that you claim that holds that salvation has been created in your image and not the other way around. The question that we must ask ourselves is, are we really desiring to know God? And what is the benefit of knowing this God? Is there a benefit to it? Or is the benefit of knowing God just being saved and not going to hell? This is, a many, this is an issue for many that claim Christ, and even some that are of Christ. We're saved. We have our hearts regenerated. We see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior, and even given eyes to see Jesus as that Savior. We do repent, confess with our mouths, and are saved. But then we never really go much further than that. And the passages, like the one from 1 John, are lost on us. But this is not the will of God for your life. This is not the will of God in your life. And yes, God is sovereign and rules over all His creation, including you. But in His sovereignty, He has given you human agency. The ability to choose within the confines of your being. And as an example of this truth, we have passages such as found in the second chapter of the letter to the church in Philippi, where Paul begins with a rhetorical question. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, first of all, are these things true? Is there any of those things in him? Well, yes. Well, since these things are true, he says, act, verses 2 through 4. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also the interests of others. You might be asking, is, not, is God not sovereign? Well, if he is, and if he wanted me to act in a certain way, then wouldn't I just do it? Well, and since he is sovereign, then isn't my sinful act his actual will for my life? If, you're, if that's your thinking, then you need to hear the very next thing that Paul says to this church, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which is yours. If you are a child of God, this is your mind in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being form, born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is the mind of Christ yours? Or do you just justify your sin and selfishness by a theology that says that God has got to be okay with what you do, since it is what you do? 
Saints, there is a duality of our salvation in our sonship with the God of the universe that we must embrace. And this is what Paul tells us next in the letter to the Philippian church. Verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not also in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, God is sovereign, and everything within his created universe is created for his glory. And yes, he has predestined some, elected some before the foundation of time as his. And yes, they have no say in being chosen. They have no say in having their hearts regenerated. But once that does happen, they do have a say. And at the same time, they will come, and they will repent, and they will obey. And we have his word on all of these things. And this is the duality of our life with Christ, life in Christ. And this is where many get confused and even complacent. They don't obey the word of the one who has given us sonship, reconciliation with God. We just stop here. And if we do, we just value the gift and not the giver. And the verses that we're considering today are meant to help us in refocusing and valuing that giver of that amazing gift. Verse 29 again of 1 John 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That verse begins with a conjunction, and in it is a defining separation as well. If. If you know this, then you are on one side. And if you don't know this, you're on the other. If you know this, then you can know, and you are meant to know the rest of the things that John is about to talk about. If you do not, then you will not only not know that he is righteous, but you will not really even understand the rest of what John is saying. And we need to be clear about the fact that there are some that claim Christ as their Savior, but who are in fact false converts and even false prophets. They are the ones that have no issue with saying that we don't, that, I'm sorry, that we do have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. They are the ones have no issue in calling into question the infallibility or authority of Scripture. They are the ones who are willing to call wrong, right, a woman, pastor, a practicing homosexual, a Christian. They don't know that he is righteous. And having started with that conjunction in question, John then tells us of an absoluteness that we are meant to have complete confidence in. You remove that conjunction, it becomes completely apparent. You know that he is righteous. And you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And once again, we're faced with that partnership of our salvation. Our actions prove who we belong to. If we know that he is righteous, then we can be sure that our actions prove if we are of this righteous one or not. How does that verse stack up alongside of those that hold that they can live sinful lives? And God's all good with that. And the point that John is making here is not bound up in the actions of these people. He's not preaching a works-based theology. He's not following the Jesus that the Mormons do that tell them that our works are what makes us righteous. Christianity tells us that it is His righteousness that makes us righteous, not our works. Our works are just merely manifestations of his righteousness found inside of us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 tells us, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human 
being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, which ties in precisely with the assurance that we are to have concerning those that are acting in righteousness. It's not them. It isn't about them. And it isn't even through them. They are merely acting in and proving who they belong to. A power that John then begins to talk about in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John continues the premise that those that are of the righteous will be righteous by pointing to their actions and saying, see? And the thing that he desires us to see aren't the actions of these people. He desires us to see that their actions are a direct reflection of the one that is righteous. And he calls these actions the manifestation of the righteous one in the lives of these humans, love. And what kind of love has, given, has God given to us? Life-changing, life-altering, life-giving kind of love. A love that cost him his life, cost him his son. A life that makes us completely alien to all, to all that do not have this life. And this is where we so often get confused. You see, if, if a child is born into a royal family, they know nothing different than this life. They think nothing of the palaces that they get to play in. They don't marvel at being able to crawl into the lap of the king. That's all they've ever known. And this is not the case for any that has ever been born of God, have had the love of God directed toward them, been adopted into the family of God. We know ourselves. We know who we are, and we know that we can never deserve or earn the ability to be in the kingdom. We know the reality of who we are. And it's so often it's that baggage that keeps us from knowing the reality of who we really are in Christ, because of Christ. It's this baggage that clings to us and which hinders us from truly grasping the true gift and benefit of being of this king. It's not the palace. It's not heaven. Listen once again to the shocking truth that John tells those that have been born again. To those that believe that Jesus is the Christ. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. We are of Christ. We are the children of God. And the emphasis here is not on the child, though. It's on the parent. We have no right to claim that position. We have no right to boldly enter into the throne room of grace outside of this kind of love, the kind that makes us children of God. You are a child of God, a son of God. But unfortunately, that's where many within the Western evangelical world remain. Thinking that because they are in Christ, the son of the king, that they get to play in the palace their entire lives. They get to attend banquets and idle the day away. They enjoy and embrace the life part of being a child of God, but they forget that they have been given the same mission, the same commission as our elder brother and savior. And that's the ministry of reconciliation. They never learn of. They never study to show themselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. They never get to know God. They worship and they adore the gift of God. And not the God of their gift. And they think, that this gift, salvation, is the benefit, the blessing, the reason for knowing this God. 
They worship God for their best life now. And even if that life, that best life now that they're thinking of, is their eternal life, it's the same. And saints, let's be honest about this. We all deserve our, or desire our best life now. We all desire comfort, ease, pleasure, health. This is all the stain and the manifestation of the sin that we are. And because this has been our reality all of our lives, or at least for most of our lives, we don't know God. We know what we think are the benefits of knowing God, but we miss the reason for knowing God. God himself. And we may have been made children of God because we have been made, and because we have been made co-heirs with Christ. And because of that, we should not find it uncommon then, or out of the normal, that we would be treated the same as Christ. This is how we're going to be seen, known, treated as the chi- uh, the, uh, by the children of gar- darkness. Knowing God being recreated into the family of God, being given the right to be called a child of God, does not mean that you get to play in the palace all your life. We forget that we have been given the rare privilege, this rare privilege, for a much greater reason, for a much greater purpose. We are given a much greater gift than this. And as proof of this, we are told that those that are not of this life This God, this word, will hate us. And persecution is not something that just happened in the past or or even in faraway third world countries. According to Open Doors, today, today, 13 Christians will be killed because of their faith. Today, 12 churches or church buildings are going to be attacked. And 12 Christians are going to be unjustly arrested or imprisoned. And another five today are simply going to just disappear. And this is the will of God in their lives as well. They are the same as us. They're loved the same as us. And for them, they know the reality of the God that saved them. They know the true benefits of this God. And this is the reality that John knew as well. He and the other disciples had been with Christ and had been told the amazing truth that they were children of God. And that is amazing truth. And they rejoiced. But then they were told the reality of being one of the children of God. That they would be hated. That they would be persecuted. And that they would be treated just as their Savior was because they were found in Him. And this was the message that Jesus told the disciples. Right after commissioning them with the same commission that he had been given, the ministry of reconciliation, in Matthew 10 we're told, he said to them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. Again, here's that duality. For it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for all by my, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the slave to be like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more would they malign those of this household? And then in Matthew 28, we are given this same commission that the disciples were. 
There, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, verses 19 and 20. In essence, the issue that we in the West, at least in this present time, have is that we live with a peacetime mentality. But this was not the reality that John lived in. And really, this is not the reality that we are meant to live in either. Because there is a war raging. And this God that saved us, He is at the center of it. And it's not because He's unjust, or unloving, or not kind. The war that is raging is because He is just, He is loving, He is kind. And more than these things, He is holy, holy, holy. And the world hates him. The world, the people of the world, in the spirit of this age, they hate this God who is love, who is just, who is this word. And the reason that we misunderstand all this is that we have come here to worship God for saving us and not for God himself. We think it's strange and awful when the world hates us. We wonder at this and we flee from it. We think that if we're kind, that if we're good, that if we do random acts of kindness, that our life will go well for us, that it should go well for us. But this is not the will of God for those that are of Him. This is not the purpose of your salvation. Hear Jesus once again concerning this salvation to those that he had given the right to be called children of God. Matthew 10, 34. Don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be in their own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Did you hear the reward that is spoken of because of this persecution? It isn't your best life now. Nor is it your eternal life either. The reward that Jesus said is of the greatest value for all that take up their cross and die. That they will receive what they get. The benefit of this great salvation is Him. And the one who sent Him. And this is what John tells us in verse 2 of 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. Beloved, you are meant to know. You are meant to be able to rest assured in the one that has made us a child of God. No matter how difficult your life is, no matter your hardship or persecution, if you have been born again, if you have been given eyes to see Jesus as Lord, then you are a child of God. And your hope is not bound up in the future. You are a child now. And the things that happen in your life are for your good, Romans 8.28. God is using these things in your life to conform you more into the image of His Son, Romans 
And then John begins to tell us something that we can't fathom. What being conformed into the image of the Son means when we are conformed that way from the outside in and the inside out. And no matter how it happens, saints, either in our death or in His coming, on that great and glorious day, we will see the full benefit of our salvation. And on that day, we will see Him. And on that day, we will not see Him from a distance as He walks by and we're in a mob of adoring people. Because He knows you individually. He chose you personally to be of Him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 4.1. And not chosen as a batch or a group, but individually. He said in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The entire time that Jesus walked the earth, he had a personal relationship with all that were of him. So much so that the end of his ministry, of his earthly life, he told the disciples this concerning the, 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 concerning the one that was going to betray him, that's going to bring about the end of his earthly life. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. John 13, 18. Saints, we will see Christ. The lover of our soul. The giver of our life. The light and the word. And that is amazing. But there's another promise given here in this verse that's also astounding. Because on that day that we see Jesus, we will be like Him. Not like Him in being God. We're never going to be like Him in that way. But we will be like Him in that we will be in our perfect, sinless, spotless, eternal, resurrected bodies. We will, that moment, for the first time ever, have a pure thought. Laugh with pure joy. Love with a pure love and see with pure eyes. And the amazing thing is, is that these pure bodies are not going to be what we will glory in. It's going to be the one that has given us these pure bodies, who has given us the right to become children of God. It is He who we will adore, that we will see for the first time, not through eyes of faith, but through eternal, resurrected, pure eyes. And it's He that we will adore. And it is He that we are given. And it is He that is a reason for us coming here today. We will stand in awe of our elder brother for all eternity. We will spend all eternity with him and never grow tired of him. Never be disappointed in him. And then verse 3 of, of John, uh, 1 John 3. Everyone who thus hopes in himself or hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And here is a summation of what it means to be born again. What the benefits of being a child of God are. We have hope. Meaning that we are just be absolutely sure of the fact that this will happen. We can be just as confident of this happening as we can of the sun setting in the west tonight and the sun rising tomorrow in the east. And if he is your hope, then you are meant to learn about this hope, to be conformed more into the image of Christ, meant to have the same mind of this one, the one that you hope in. He is the reason that we are here today. He is the reason that we will stand in his presence in heaven, in perfect, sinless, resurrected bodies that are like His. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. He has given us all these things. And He is the prize, the goal, the reward that we will never earn, never deserve, never grow tired of. He is the reason that we sing. He is the, one that we, the reason that we come, the reason that we submit, the reason that we preach, the reason that we read and obey. He is who will hold you fast 
And he is a reason that any and all persecution here in this realm makes any sense at all. Because when that happens, we are being identified in him, with him. The world is seeing him in us as we stand and live and die in and for him. Saints, if your focus is on getting to heaven, if what you value most in your Christianity is getting to heaven, your faith is going to be anemic. Your life will be lacking. And you're going to often wonder, am I saved or not? Because you're focusing on the gift and not the giver of that amazing gift. Listen to the admonition from the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, closely, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of, God, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched. We have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order what was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yes, once more, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. 
that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us thus, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Saints, come to the God that is a consuming fire. Come to know Him. Come to worship Him. Not the things of Him. Not the benefits of Him. Not Him making you a better person. Come to live for and in and through Him. This is why we gather here today. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. And you are worthy of all honor and praise. You are worthy to receive all honor and praise. You are worthy to receive all of us. Father, give us the wisdom to seek you. May we see you as the benefit of our salvation and not our best life now or our best life in heaven. May in times of distress, Lord, may it be you that we long for and not heaven. Father, grant us this grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.